many years ago now, I was running in one of the few races um, that I've ever run in in my life. I've done a lot of sports, but not a lot of competitive running. But this was a 5K, and I was actually deciding that I was going to see how fast I could go, and I would actually run. And I remember as I was coming toward basically the home stretch of this, what is it, 3.2-mile race, there was someone ahead of me by, I'm guessing now as I think back, maybe 20 yards, maybe 30 yards. And there was this inner process that my mind went through. If you know me, I'm a fairly competitive person, and so there was this thought that went through, catch him. And I'd been running at, a, at, at least at that time, was for me a pretty significant pace. And so the message gets trans, you know, transmitted, legs, start running faster. Catch that guy. And it was, I think it was the first time in my life to that point that my legs said back to me, command center, no. Respectfully, your hamstrings. Now, I grew up, I mean, my sports were basketball and tennis, and those had their strenuous activity, but it was in bursts, right? And so you always had a little more in the tank. You always had a little more that you could, you could do. You just had to take care of your wind. This was the first time my legs said, you will not go any faster. And I just like my, my command center said, okay, Peter, you will not catch him. Just try to keep going just as fast as you are right now. It was the wildest thing. It was, I, I, I sympathize with you who have run competitively, and you say, yeah, that, I know exactly what that is. No, it was, it was a very new thing for me. You say, why do you start here? Because tonight we're going to look at a very interesting verse here and phrase that Peter has for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 8 of chapter 4, of, first, of, of, of chapter 4 of 1 Peter, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity, the word there is agape, what we might think of as love, that's just the idea of the word agape, shall cover the multitude of sins. That word there, fervent, Sometimes this word comes from a Greek word when we see it translated that means boiling, but not here. The Greek word is a Greek word, ektenes. We transliterate it E-K-T-E-N-E-S, ektenes. That literally means stretched out. And it was used in Greek language of literature in the past to refer to a horse straining in running or to a muscle that is being stretched like someone sprinting for a finish line. And the idea came to be of a kind of activity, a kind of conduct that was straining, that was stretching, that was reaching forward, and that was continuing consistent. Now you can see where the translators had the idea of fervent. A fervent love that was straining and stretching like a muscle being pushed 
to its extreme. I want that picture in your mind as you think what Peter is saying to us today in 21st century America, straight gate, above all things, have stretched out straining love for one another. And then, why? Because love covers the multitude of sins. The title of the message tonight, Above All, Charity. Above All, Charity. And the kind of charity that, like someone pursuing a finish line, has a muscle of love that is stretched and straining and persevering toward the goal that is set before us. First of all, let's look at what I'm going to call the priority. Notice here in verse 8 that Peter says, above all things have fervent charity. Now let's step back for a little bit of context. What is this book of 1 Peter all about? Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians about a theme that comes back over and over and over again in this book. Does anyone of you would like to hazard a guess? What is Peter referring to as something that they are going through and it becomes a theme over and over and over again? Anyone? Suffering. That was exactly the word that was on mine. Suffering. Peter is writing to people who are suffering and they would continue to suffer. And Peter brings them the example of Jesus as the kind of archetype of suffering. He is the great example of suffering and of difficulty. And he holds Jesus' example in front of them. Notice it in verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, in the body, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. You bring on the same kind of mindset to be a part of your life. Just like Christ suffered, you arm yourself with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Let it be a way in which your suffering is drawing you closer to the will of God, not pushing you away from it. Peter is going to have this idea of suffering on his mind. And notice what he says then in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. Was Peter lying? No. When you realize that the gospel writers themselves were living as if the end was near and writing, the end is at hand, the end is at hand, the end is at hand. And now 2,000 years have passed and scripture is still telling us the end is at hand, the end is at hand, the end is at hand. What's clear to me is that the Bible wants all of us to be living exactly like the end is at hand. He wants us to have a mindset that says Jesus could return for his church before our service ends tonight. The end is truly at hand. It was at hand 2,000 years ago. And if Jesus tarries for another 2,000 years, it will still be at hand. We are, if you will, 
as the analogy has been, we are going along the brink of it. It's almost as if we are running parallel, right on the brink of the end. And only God knows when that time is. And so he says here, the end of all things is at hand. Notice what comes next. Be ye therefore, now what's the next word? Sober. Now, when I read this and was thinking about this passage, I said, aha. We preached last week about being sober. Same word. Same idea. Same root idea. What's he saying? If your mindset is in the right place, remember sobriety, being sober biblically is having your mind in the right place first. If your mind is in the right place, it will realize that you're living as if the end is at hand. That you are living in this idea of the end times that, that Jesus could return at any point. And so therefore you are going to be sober and you are going to watch unto prayer or for the purpose of prayer your mind and your entire focus of concentration is going to be directing you toward prayer that's a wonderful encouragement for all of us that when we are have sober minds we will have praying hearts because we realize what time it is. The time is near. The time is at hand. And now notice he says in verse 8, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Now he's not pitting prayer against love. He's not saying, okay, we got prayer over here. And then if you don't get around to that, at least above all things, have love, have charity. In fact, we know that our love toward one another is the only true ground for our prayer. Remember when, when Peter, in the same book, only a chapter before, says to husbands, he says, husbands, you dwell with your wives according to knowledge. You give honor unto them as the weaker vessel. Why does he say that? Lest your prayers be hindered. Husbands, if you're not loving your wife as Christ loves the church, your prayer life will be affected by it. And so the ground of love, if you will, is the foundation for so many of our Christian virtues. But why does Peter say, above all things, have fervent charity, this kind of stretched out muscle of love to be pursuing? Well, we could say in the context of this book, he's referring to one of the great challenges of love, suffering, stress, let me ask you this, friends. Do you find it easier or harder to show practical love to the people around you when you're under significant stress? Do you find it easier or harder? We all know the answer. It's easier to show love to others when everything is going well in my internal mental space. I'm able to process. I'm able to think through. I'm able to receive things. And I'm able to respond in the right way and then put me under stress. I've got children tugging at me. I've got deadlines mounting at work. I've got things beyond my control being heaped on me. And suddenly now, under this stress, under this difficulty, under this suffering, I'm supposed to respond with fervent charity toward other people who are adding to my stress? Good luck. Yeah. In the context of speaking to people who are under suffering, who are under pressure, are under stress... Peter is saying, you Christian church that is suffering, above all things, stretch out your muscle of love toward one another. 
That's just a really good practical thing for all of us to have a priority and a focus in seasons of stress. Lord, let me reflect your love right now. Let me have fervent charity toward those around me. Another reason that we could say, again, from the context of this book, is because it is directly a result of salvation. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, seeing ye have purified your souls. He's speaking to Christians. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Well, it was obeying the truth. It wasn't meriting your salvation. It was believing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Their obedience to the truth was repentance and belief. And notice, it was through the Spirit. Now listen to this prepositional phrase. Unto unfeigned or sincere love of the brethren. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto what? Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying your salvation, the purifying of your heart, is unto sincere love of the brethren. Why did God save you? What is the result of his salvation of you? He loved, he saved you unto loving others. It's like he says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto what? Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. He saved you, friend, to be a reflection of his divine character, of a God who is love. He saved you to manifest the glory of his love by your practical actions to a world that knows nothing of true, biblical, divine love. And therefore, he says, above all, as a reflection, as a result of your own salvation, love one another fervently. But there's one other thing that we should say here by way of priority. It is the reality of salvation. It is because, as Jesus said in John chapter 13, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. I had a, I had a uh, reflection of that this week in a way that was very significant to me. I was in a uh, uh, lift car um, going, coming back to the Denver airport from downtown. And if you've ever been to Denver and gone from the airport to downtown, you know why on earth did you put this airport out here? Do we have to have a 40-minute ride into downtown? I'm sorry, I, I, should be, um, I should be applying my own sermon in love to my own thinking on this. But nonetheless, we had a long drive, and there was a very chatty uh, woman who was with me in the lift, and so this was going to be a conversation. And um, we started just having conversation. We, we started talking about things, and one thing that that I like to do if I'm in a Lyft or an Uber and I'm in a conversation, I like to just kind of salt the conversation with Christian things. I might talk about my church. I might mention I'm a pastor. I might, do, I might have another, another opportunity just to say a word and just see how they respond. Are they going to be open to it? Are they going to immediately close it off and shut it down? And just allow that as just an opportunity not to hammer people over the head, but just see where things go. So sure enough, we're talking... And we start to go down this path. She tells me she's a Buddhist. 
and she enjoys going to the temple, and she starts talking about this, and so I start sharing a little bit about this, and she mentions that her, 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 her husband grew up Catholic, and his family is Catholic. She said, yeah, his parents came to stay with us. She had four children, and she said, but it was, it was really interesting. The, the mother, she said, had, um, she was reading and studying and meditating all the time, but she never had time to hang out with my kids. That remarkable thing. She told me, she said, my, my kids, she said, um, finally we just basically kind of, they had to move out of the house. It just really wasn't working out. And the kids suddenly started coming out of their shell and just in experiencing life so much more. She said, yeah, my kids didn't have a hard time. It kind of pushed them toward Buddhism when they saw how my um, in-laws reacted. Now, we should be careful with these stories because oftentimes people love to use that as an excuse to do what they always have wanted to do. So while we should be careful, while we should be aware, I thought, what a profound reality that for a woman and her children, they looked at, a, at, at people who professed to be very devout, professed the name of Christ, and yet by their practical responses in the way they lived, were very ab- actually off-putting, actually pushing away from the reality or the truth of what they said. It is exactly goes to what Jesus says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love. If the reality of the transformation of your life is evident to other people, it is evidence of the, the divine relationship that you have with me. And therefore, the priority that we see here, above all things... For a world that does not know what true divine sacrificial love is, if they do not see it on a daily basis in us, we are simply hobbling the Great Commission. We're simply hobbling our ability to communicate the divine transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Above all, he says, have this kind, have this stretched out love in charity for one another. So here's the priority, but secondly, let's look at what I'm going to call a principle, a principle of this love. Will you notice with me in verse number, get back to chapter four, to verse number eight. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. And he's going to say, why? For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Have this stretched out charity because it will cover the multitude of sins. Now let's stop for just one moment to get one reality very clear. Who's he talking to here? Christians. What does he mean then? He's saying your love is necessary because other Christians will sin against you. And all of us know this intellectually. We know that other Christians in our fellowship will, sing, will sin against us. Why does that still become so hard when it happens? Why do we so often act surprised when it does? I can't believe she was rude to me like that. I can't believe that he let me down in this situation. Peter's saying the reason you need love is because your fellowship's not going to be perfect. Of course it's not. You're in it. I'm in it. Of course it's not going to be perfect. Because I sin against other Christians. And therefore I cannot be surprised when other Christians sin against me. 
Love, he says, covers a multitude of sins, and this is the necessity for our charity among ourselves. But what does he mean when he says that love will cover a multitude of sins? Well, I think one thing that we'll need to understand is this actually is a paraphrase. This is actually a kind of quote of another biblical passage. Does anyone know where you've heard that phrase before? For love will cover a multitude of sins or something similar to it. Any ideas? Any ideas? Come on, folks. Let's go back to Proverbs. Peter is quoting here, or at least paraphrasing, a proverb. And it is Proverbs 10, 12. Proverbs 10, 12. Listen to what Proverbs says in chapter 10 and verse 12. Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth all sins. And now Peter, a man who knew his Old Testament, is using this as an example of a reason for Christian love. Hatred stirs up strife, strifes, plural, but love covers all sins. What does hatred do? Hatred stirs up strifes. Now what are strifes? Strife is referring to a breakdown of fellowship. Something that divides you from another human being. When you are at strife, you are bickering. You are fighting. Those of you who have young children know exactly what that is. For those to be in bickering or fighting with each other in strife. Now then think about what hatred does. Hatred stirs up strife. It's like if you go to a, a, the lake in summertime and you walk into the into the sandy beach and into the water and you start dredging up the sand with your feet and the sand just fills the water and what, 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 what was once a clear sight, you could see all the way down to the bottom, is now just covered with sand and mud. And Proverbs is saying hatred, that kind of lack of love, that enmity for one another, just dredges up stuff. And what it does is instead of having a clear water of fellowship with one another, it's now just polluted. It's just dredged up. There are all kinds of offenses that are there. And we should just pause for a moment to ask ourselves this question. How many of my relationships are like that kind of dredged up, dirty, muddy water? You know what I remember uh, on this I was actually, comparatively speaking, one of the first users of Facebook. I mean, not literally one of the first users, but Facebook came out actually early just in the Ivy League. I think it was in fall 2003 or somewhere around that time. And I was in school in, in, at Duke University, which was one of the first places it spread after its initial place, and I signed up. I think I've been on Facebook, perished the thought, for going on 20 years, probably 19 years. Um, I hardly use it, thankfully. Um, but one of the things that I still remember, have you ever seen the Facebook relationship status that says it's complicated? Are you in a relationship? It's complicated. How many relationships do you have in life where you would have to just say, honestly, it's complicated? 
And it's because your relationship with that person has been on the basis of stuff that has been dredged up, strifes that have been dredged up that maybe you've had a role in. The mud, you know full well that you have been involved in, in bringing some mud up from the bottom, and now it affects the way you think about that person. It affects the way you speak about that person. It affects the way you, 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 you identify with that person when even their name comes up in your mind. Ooh, it's complicated. Now, Peter is saying with other Christians... There is a love that does not stir up strifes, like dredging up the bottom of a pond. There is a love that covers a multitude of sins. So Proverbs is using this as a contrast. So what is Peter suggesting? What love does is it covers, it doesn't dredge up. It would be like if there were a spot, if there were a stain, if there were something, love comes and cloaks it. It conceals it. Now, let's stop for a minute and say very clearly what this does not mean. It does not mean that love does not confront sin. Love is not love if it does not confront sin. The Bible says very clearly that if your brother offends you, if your brother sins against you, you go and you tell him his fault alone. We need, if we're going to know what love is in the Christian community, we're going to need to know how to biblically rebuke someone. And by rebuke, we oftentimes just mean, I got to go hit him over the head with a two by four. No. There is a very there's a way that spiritual that spiritual sensitive people rebuke people in a way that they will be able to receive. And it's not harsh and it's not mean-spirited. It's gentle and it's constructive and it builds them up and edifies them in the Lord. We need to, to grow all of us in that. He's not saying you, if someone is acting in a completely unbiblical way, you just cover it, you just ignore it. That's not what he's saying. It would be against what we see elsewhere in the Bible. What is he saying? Let me suggest this. I think the best example is of Jesus. Jesus did not have any problem with confronting and rebuking sin. I'll tell you, I don't think that I've ever looked at another human being and said, you know, you're a brood of vipers. I don't think I've ever done that. Jesus could do that. Jesus could look at people and say, you're like a whited sepulcher. You're, you're, you're pretty on the outside and you're dead on the inside. I've, I don't think I've ever done that either. Jesus had no problem with rebuking and calling out sin when it needed to be corrected. But here was the difference. When someone acted in a way that was against him, that was a personal insult or offense to him, he did not respond in kind. You see, that's the difference. What love does is it stands on God's side and confront sin. What hatred does is stand on my side and confront personal offense and irritation. You see the difference? Jesus stood on God's side to say, Pharisees, you're sending people to hell, and I will not stand for it. I will correct it. And yet, when people hung him on a cross, and it was his own personal offense, it was his own would we say, in our words, frustration, his own hurt at stake? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
And if you can get the difference between these two things, you're going to know how to respond to people in love. Are they sinning against God? Then you're going to be grieved because you're going to stand on God's side and you say, oh God, how can I help them get closer to you in this situation by moving past this sin? And then when that sin is like an arrow coming at you, you're going to say, God, you know I've already forgiven from them, them, them for that. You know I'm going to cover the personal offense and irritation and frustration that is against me. Again, those are the two things. Those are the two areas. Love does both of them. It stands on God's side and it refuses to stand and hold grudges on my side. And this is what he means. Love covers a multitude of sins, not because it ignores sins against God, but because it willingly covers sins, if you might say it, that are my kind of personal offense. It tells me why I can forgive someone the moment they do something against me. I can already release them to God. And while I can still go to them in love and say, brother, you know this was wrong and it needs to be made right. Why? Because no longer am I holding the grudge. I'm solely doing it as his agent, as his representative. And all personal grudge, all personal bitterness, all personal aggravation is gone. Now I love. I love God so I confront. I love them so I do it with graciousness and kindness. So you see what love does, it covers. And it covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of personal offenses and grievances that I might hold as grudges. Let me suggest at least four ways that love covers a multitude of sins. Here's the first thing it does. It puts the best construction on ambiguous things. Love covers a multitude of sins by by putting the best construction on ambiguous things. Friends, do you know one of the greatest reasons that we have strife with one another, including in Christian fellowships, is because we simply do not put the best construction on actions that are done. And any of you who are married know exactly what this is. You know that example that we've used in the past of men wearing red headphones and women wearing uh, you know, or no, pink, women wearing pink headphones, men wearing blue headphones, women speaking into pink microphones, men speaking into blue microphones. We hear things and we speak things as spouses completely differently. And one of the things that I have seen and one of the, gr- the greatest difficulties in marriage is that instead of putting ourselves in our spouse's shoes, we put ourselves in our shoes, Our partner, our spouse says something to us or does something to us. And we say, if I said that, what I would mean is this. But friends, you're not your spouse. You you don't know what they meant for sure. You might not know what they were truly intending to communicate. It may not have been intentional. It may have been negligent. It may have even been less than negligent. And yet, how do I respond? Instead of putting the best construction on what is ambiguous, I immediately leap to put the worst construction based on how I would have meant it if I were in their shoes. And what happens? Suddenly there is a a kind of stirring up of strife, a difficulty, a breaking of fellowship over it. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love bears all things, but love also does this. It believes all things. 
It believes all things. I'll never forget the words that my father used to tell us over and over and over again that his mother used to tell him over and over and over again, think the best. Think the best. Friends, those of you who are married, do you want to keep marital harmony between yourselves? Think the best. Think the best of everything that your spouse does. Think the best, no matter how difficult that construction is to put on it. Think the best. Here's the second thing that love does. It doesn't just put the best construction on what is ambiguous. It suffers long under irritation. It suffers long under personal irritation. This is 1 Corinthians 13 again. Love suffers long and is kind. Those two things go together. In other words, it's saying love suffers under personal irritation and remains kind. It is kind even when it is facing aggravation. The picture here is of someone who is, 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 is irritating you, is frustrating you in certain ways by their, maybe their words or their conduct. And there's an ability here for us, as scripture says, to forbear, to bear long. Think about that muscle stretched out. That's the idea, we're, we're the picture we have here. A muscle that is stretched out and that is straining. And now imagine that patient love that is willing to be stretched and stretched and stretched and stretched and continue being kind, continue being gentle, continue being meek. That's the kind of fervent love Peter's saying above all. By putting the best construction on what is ambiguous. By suffering long under personal irritation. And here's one that comes right alongside it. By readily forgiving. Colossians chapter 3 says that we are to forbear one another. And it immediately goes on to say, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And here's this idea, if we're going to be forbearing long with one another, we're going to be forgiving them over and over and over and over. Like Peter coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive someone who offends me? Is it seven times? And Jesus says, how about 70 times seven in a day? That's the kind of forgiveness that is the manifestation of the love of God that is to be transforming us. It is the kind of this action is the kind that says to the person, the fellow Christian who has irritated you over and over and over again, you just say, I'm willing to cover it again. 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 Above all things, let that muscle of love be stretched out, be straining, be continuing to persevere. One more thing. Love covers a multitude of sins by never spreading them. Never. Never. This is a very important thing when we think about the nature of what hatred does. Hatred stirs up strife, and hatred delights in spreading the sins of others to damage their reputation or to elevate mine. Sometimes that can be very pious even. In a way, uh, we need to pray for this brother over here for the kinds of grievous sins that they've come up under. Now, friends, there is a time to correct or have church discipline or have other things that are truly the, the nature of prayer. But I think all of us know 
in our own heart of hearts when I am telling a story about someone else's sin that is really about my personal grudge, that is about my personal irritation, that is about my own form of revenge. I can tell you in ways in which I have sinned grievously, in which stories that I thought were funny about someone else's peccadillo, someone, other Christian's weird behavior, other things, just, just tell them because it was funny and because other people would get a laugh. What does love do? Love puts, a, love puts a covering over that. Love puts a covering over what other people do, other Christians do in their moments that undoubtedly perhaps embarrass them and is willing never to spread it. There's an old story of a person who was speaking against a rabbi. And the story goes that he was spreading stories about them and he went to this rabbi and told him about it by way of making reconciliation, I suppose. And the rabbi said, go take a, a pillow, a feather pillow, and go open it and spread it and then come back and talk to me. And he came back to the rabbi and he said, okay, I've done it, kind of feeling proud of himself. And the rabbi said, I want you to go pick up every one of those feathers that you spread. He was making the point that one who spreads gossip about the sins of other people is like going into a windy day and throwing up a thing of feathers and then expecting that I can corral the damage, that I can go and pick up each one of them. No, love covering a multitude of sins looks like after forgiving it, after releasing my own personal irritation, my own personal grudge, I don't need to go and spread it to others unless truly it is love for the purposes of God and for the correction of that brother that make it necessary under biblical, truly biblical standards. How are we doing? How's our love muscle doing? Are we saying above all things, let's have this stretched out kind of charity of love for one another? We see here the priority, we see here Secondly, the principle, and third, let's look at the practice. Will you notice with me the next verse here in chapter 4 of 1 Peter? Above all things, verse 8 says, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And now he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Here's the very simple point. Think about what he's saying. Use hospitality one to another but do it without grudging. Remember what hatred did? Hatred stirred up strife that broke fellowship with one another. What does love do? Love covers sins and invites the person into fellowship by hospitality. You know, one connection we can simply make is this. Love is practical Love does not just use words. Love invites people into fellowship with me. That's why love covers sins. Because love desires fellowship. Love desires to be close. Love desires to be united. And so we don't just cover the irritations of others in order to praise ourselves for how spiritual we are, how, how ascetic, how monk-like I am, what a great endurance I have. No, love covers sin so that it can invite them and those people into fellowship. And I wonder how often it happens where our irritations toward another Christian brother or sister simply build up in our hearts where we wouldn't say mean words about him, but we sure wouldn't invite him over. 
We sure wouldn't invite them into participating in hospitality with us. Friends, beware of that. I don't think Peter is saying this without any thought of a connection that we above all are to have fervent charity to cover a multitude of sins among each other. And he says, yeah, make sure that you're using hospitality, that that love is flowing out to draw people in to fellowship. You know what another connection is? We just made it here. Hospitality is hindered by our own personal irritation. When we are getting frustrated and irritated by the, by the peccadillos, by the weaknesses of others, we're not going to be able to invite them into the kind of fellowship that God desires. Maybe this would be helpful. Can I just say this? We really have two choices when someone irritates us, biblically. One choice is to forbear. One choice is simply to cover that sin like a multitude of sins. The other one is to go and make sure that fellowship is restored. If, I can't, if, if, for, if, if I'm dealing with that kind of personal irritation, if I'm having problems with that forbearance, I need to go and I need to get it right. Do you know what I cannot do? I cannot sit and hold a grudge. I cannot sit and criticize that person to other people. I, can, I have two choices. Am I just going to say, Lord, I've got the grace to just put this aside, to just completely cover this over, to forbear it, and to overlook it, knowing that other people are doing that for me? That's a choice. My other choice is... I better go make it right. I better go talk about it. I better go deal with it. What I cannot do, I better not sit and stew on it. And this is true for our marriages. It's true for our life together as a church. It's true for our family relationships. Do not let yourself stew on the irritations and on the frustrations that other people bring into your life. May God give us grace spiritually to know what that love is looks like. And notice what he says then to end in verse 9. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Let this practical love that covers a multitude of sins be that which brings people into fellowship and never complains, never grudges, never gives in to more irritation. As we move into this Christmas season, as we continue into a new year, it's going to be important, friends, to realize that people in this body are going to sin against you, are going to irritate you, are going to frustrate you. And that means what Peter says here is so practically relevant to all of us. Are you willing for the muscle of love? It's not your strength. It's the divine strength that God gives you in the Holy Spirit. Are you going to stretch that out are you going to be willing to strain? Are you going to be willing to prioritize and focus on showing the kind of agape love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ that will cover a multitude of sins and bring them into practical fellowship with yourself? Don't forget, you might reach the point like I did. I'm tapped out. But that's where the power of God will reveal himself in you if you'll trust him, if you'll rely on him to be able to keep on going, to stretch out that love a little bit further and ultimately to reflect the character of your Lord and Savior.